closing out the book of 1 John. The next two weeks will be 2 John and then 3 John. Uh, This is titled Certainties, and I think we all like to have certainties in life. We like things that we can bank on. And no matter what happens in life, there are some things uh, you can know with certainty. Uh, Everyone around you may be upset at you. Uh, They may rather not be around you, but you can know with certainty uh, that your dog still likes you and wants to spend time with you. If you lose that certainty, then you are a a terrible person. Uh, The other one I always notice is is people may think you're ugly, right? They might even tell you you're ugly, but you can know with certainty that your mama thinks you're handsome. I just want to illustrate that point. I had a, um, shockingly had a bunch of friends growing up, and I still remember one of my friends, uh, he was very confident in how good looking he was. Um, he wasn't, but, uh, and I mean that in the nicest way, but I still remember we'd walk around and you, you know, you walk, you know, if you're a teen boy, you think you're something. Um, and he would be like, yeah, you see everyone looking at me. And I'm like, I see everyone looking away from us, but I don't see anyone looking at us, but you can keep thinking that. And I I always wondered, man, does he have a magic mirror? Because I think I want one of those. And I was always confused because, again, I'm not being mean. He just just wasn't good looking. Um, And uh, there was nothing about him that said, "Woo, you know, (laughs) you're amazing. Um, But he thought so. And I, I always was blown away. I'm like, how does he think this? Like, where does he get this confidence? And then I was around uh, his mom, and I realized how much she beat into his head how amazing he looked. And she would tell him, you see people looking at you? And I remember thinking, ah, should I tell him his mom's lying? But I, <laughs> I, I didn't, because again, I'm a teen boy, and I, no one tells truth to their friends, right? You know? But all that's to say is you can usually bank on your mom thinking you're handsome or pretty. I say that just if you need a note of encouragement, go to them, but it's not necessarily a note of reality. Um, (laughs) The fact is we all like certainties. We like to know some things are guaranteed without a shadow of a doubt. And John is closing this letter by giving the church some clear certainties of the faith. And I I want you to realize, again, we've walked through this and we look back and we think, okay, why are they, why are they swayed or why are they uh, facing these hurdles? And, and remember, they're watching false teachers come in. Uh, we live in an environment where we can vet someone a, a lot easier, right? You could go online and listen to someone speak or read their books. And they didn't have that luxury. So they'd had a wave of false teaching in their church. Uh, they've seen people leave the church. And so their faith has been rocked a little bit. And, and John has been telling them, that they can know with certainty that they are God's children. And so he's closing out this letter, writing to them to let them know that there are some certainties of the faith. And he begins that list with the certainty that as believers, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. And this purpose, uh, this, this is stated in what would be called the purpose statement of 1 John. Uh, John is one of those writers that gives you his reason. If you look at the Gospel of John, he tells you why he wrote that book. He wrote that so that you would believe. And when you look at 1 John in 13, he's telling you why he wrote. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, John loves to repeat himself and he's not trying to say the same thing twice. He's wanting them to rest in their faith. And he wants them to know that they have eternal life. He's done this throughout the book. 
He's been reassuring the true church of their faith, of their life in Christ and their faith, and, and he's been reassuring them and then prodding them uh, to respond to it. He's pointed them back to that truth, and it all culminates in this verse. If you look at 1 John 1, 3 through 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 2, verse 26, and now 5, 13, he writes about, I've written these things, I've written these things, and he's building to this point of assurance, this idea that you can know that you have eternal life. One writer summarized all those verses in one and wrote this, I'm writing, it'd be like John saying this, I'm writing because you're true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst, and I want you to be rock solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God, so that, and he does this for a reason, and we're going to get to that, so that you're not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. That's summarizing all the, the, these are written so you'll know. And he's constantly been driving them to understand what they have in Christ and that they will respond accordingly. We as believers have a complete assurance of eternal life that cannot be taken from us. We can rest in knowing the Son of God. John 10, 28 through 29 states this, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John wrote this letter so the church would know confidently that they have eternal life. What is a certainty of the faith? We have eternal life. God never gives shaky promises. God never backs out of his word. Uh, we're used to seeing people fail, right? We look around the world or we look even in our own world and we watch people who we uh, respect and we honor and in some ways reverence and we watch them say things and then we watch them not accomplish those. And it destroys our confidence in, in certain people. Sadly, uh, we've seen that from people who are leaders in the church I'm not saying in city life, but in church in general, who destroy our confidence because we see them fail and we see them falter and we see them lie. And what John wants them to understand is that God has promised them life and that God is not shaky on his promises. He's not backing down from them. He doesn't back out of his word. We know and are assured of eternal life because our Lord and Savior has bought us back from the depths and consequences of our sin and slavery. He's paid the price and he's purchased us back. The question though is, do you live now with that reality in mind? <clears throat> do you approach life knowing with confidence that you've been given eternal life and does it shape your behavior and then does it shape your purpose? You see, one of the, the, the dangers of deceitful teaching that undermines our confidence in Christ is that we then start evaluating all these other philosophies and all these other options, and we start thinking they have value next to what God says. And so by reassuring the church and saying, you have eternal life, that you're assured in Christ, it removes the doubt that, that Satan loves to put into our mind. It removes the discouragement. He assures us of eternal life and then he promises that we are heard, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to go ahead and read those. It says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, God tells us that we are heard. A couple points here. There's two. One, he hears and responds to us when we ask in his will. John writes that we come to God in confidence. And again, this is not some arrogant confidence that we walk in. It literally means freedom of speech. The idea is boldness or openness. John is saying you speak to God with the freedom to speak, that you're able to express your heart, that you walk with boldness and openness. And where are you coming? You come into his presence. And this is the point. We're given an audience with him and promise that he grants that request, but only as that petition aligns with his will. So we see this idea that God hears us, and the promise is is that he responds to us. Our prayers actually help us come in sync with his will. If you look at Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is before he is arrested. He knows what's going to take place. He's God. And so here he is praying, and by the way, uh, we'll talk about this in spiritual boot camp, but Jesus, who's fully human, fully God, he's here on earth, so his communion with God the Father is really not broken at all. Just go through the Gospels and count up how much time he spends praying, and then compare that to how much time you spend praying, and then realize that in all honesty, you have to ask yourself, did he need to pray at all? And you realize he's praying. So now you see him in the garden with communion with the Father, and he's praying to him, and it shows the alignment of will. He he prays this, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. And what he's talking about is not just the anguish of the cross, but actually the known separation from the Father that's going to take place on the cross as the Father turns his back to his Son as he takes all sin upon him. But he, he, he finishes the prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As we pray in his will, he answers. And so prayer is is an avenue where our will gets aligned with his will. And, And when we pray in his will, we bring him glory and it unfolds into our joy. Uh, John MacArthur notes this, when obedient believers delight themselves in the Lord, he will plant the desires in their hearts for what glorifies him. And those desires will control their prayers. God's answers to those prayers will glorify him, bring believers' wills into line with his purpose, and fill them with joy. I want you to realize that prayer, real prayer, prayer that seeks to dive into God's will will shape you into who God wants you to be, will shape you into having the desires that he desires. He works through prayer. And so John is telling the church, he hears you and he responds to you. But beyond that, we can also know that he hears and intervenes for us. Uh, 16 can look like a change uh, from the topic, but it's not. He moves from our petitions, our requests that we make to God for ourselves to now looking out at the body of believers around us and seeing people seeing the church and recognizing that as we watch 
someone struggling, we don't look helplessly on at our brothers and sisters in Christ struggling with sin and throw our hands in the air and say, ah, there's nothing I can do. Because John says, and remember, he's speaking to a church who have the, the sad reality that false teachers have come in. They've watched people leaving. They've watched fellow believers who they say, well, I, I know that person believes and watching them being maybe deceived, getting sucked into the world system around them. And don't think for a second that ancient culture and, and it's not going to matter. Uh, they're in the hotbed of paganism there. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. This is where they worship Diana one of the wonders of the world, their tourist attraction. And so it's very easy to get caught up into what the world is doing. And John says, as you watch someone struggling, you're not helpless. No, instead we are to petition our Lord and expectantly work and wait for his restoration. And he speaks to this to the church. He says, you live in hope. You don't live in a hopeless situation. You don't look at fellow believers and say, well, there's absolutely nothing I can do for them. He says, no, he hears you and he intervenes for us. Now, he makes this mention of a sin unto death and we really cannot know from the context exactly what that is. Is that sin unto death an unbeliever that has ultimately rejected Christ and is gonna go to their grave without knowing Christ as their savior? Or is this a believer who's committed a sin that is so horrific that it results in God taking their life. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, and they drop dead. There's no indication that they're not redeemed. They chose to sell a property and then lie about it. And to purify his church, God took them home. Paul addresses the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In other words, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and saying, You guys are engaging in some sins that God says, I'm going to remove you from earth. In those cases, our prayers will not result in the outcome that might otherwise be expected. John writes that so that they're trusting in God. He's saying to them, and, and look, We don't know, and that's the one danger you can fall into. Well, I'm not praying for that guy because he's definitely doing something God's going to kill him for. Very dangerous move to make. That's not the expectation, and that's not what we're supposed to do. What we're doing is recognizing that in God and his sovereign wisdom may take a believer home because of what's taking place to purify his church and to elevate his name. However, John wants to reaffirm them. That's why in 17, he kind of comes back and wants to reaffirm them that the work of intervention uh, is dealing with unrighteousness. And that's why he says unrighteousness is sin and that not all sin results in immediate death. What he's trying to tell the church, he, he warns them that there are sins that God is then going to take the believer home for. It's not for us to pick and decide that. However, he, he closes out this intervention in prayer by saying this, all sin is serious, but we should be seeking his forgiveness, confessing and forsaking it, and praying the same for our fellow believers. He wants the church to realize that you're to be praying in his will and God will respond to you. That prayer will shape your life, that will shape your will to align with his. 
He wants the church to look around and not in desperation look at believers who are struggling and say, I'm going to throw my hands up. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm totally lost. I don't get to preach up there. And even then, they don't listen to preaching anyway. Um, and so I'm just going to throw my hands up and say, that's all there is to do. No, as a believer, you have a direct responsibility and privilege to seek your Savior's face, to confidently walk into his presence for other believers and intervene and know with confidence that God works in their lives. Because we know that God hears us and responds and intervenes on our behalf. That is a truth upon which we can bank. But the question is this, are we going to him in prayer? As we quickly say to God, prayer doesn't work. <clears throat> I don't see you working the way I expected you to work. I was hoping that I'd open my wallet and you have shoved hundreds in there. And then I open my wallet and the hundreds are not there. Because we pray in our own selfishness and in our own mindset and with our own desires, we don't seek and see prayer as we should. But the real problem is we don't go to him in prayer Put as a second question, are we petitioning him in his will? Are we seeking his intervention in the lives of our fellow believers? How do you deal with sin that you see in a brother or sister's life? I know my first tendency, it's judgmentalism. I cast it down. Oh, they're a horrible person. God's going to punish them. He'll take care of them. And John is saying, pray for that person. Seek God's intervention for a change in them, to work to bring them around, not to strike them with lightning. Are we seeking his intervention in the lives of our fellow believers? Are you praying for the spiritual well-being of your church? Are you getting individual about it? Are we acting upon the promise that we are heard? Do you go to God in prayer knowing with confidence that he hears you? Or do you go to him in prayer because you need to check that off your box because you're like, ah, I'm a Christian, so I pray. And so let me check the box of prayer. Do we approach God knowing he hears us? We're to go to him in prayer. We're to deal with unrighteousness because we can know forgiveness from sin. And as John points out in verse 18, we have victory over sin. If you look at 18, he says this, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, it's really easy to misinterpret that and take it out of context. Say, well, there you go. If you're a Christian, you don't sin. So if you sin, you're not a Christian. Well, that goes against what he said in 1 John uh, 8 through 10 about how we sin and we confess sin. What he's saying is that as a believer... We are not controlled by sin. We have victory over sin. He enables us. <coughs> sin no longer, <coughs> excuse me, sin no longer is the pattern of a believer's life. Now, sadly, sin is the only pattern possible for the unsaved and the unredeemed. It doesn't mean they sin to the fullest. I'm just saying they have no choice but to sin. They are sinners from birth, slaves to sin, who defiantly persist in sin. They are dead in trespasses and sin. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, the fact that you sin is not surprising. 
The fact that you're drawn to sin is not surprising. The fact that sin is a pattern in your life is not surprising. That is the pattern of the unredeemed. If you look at your life and it's pattern after sin, then I'm telling you right now that that's pointing to something in your life because a believer doesn't have a pattern of sin. Now, we are not sinless. The believer, sin cannot be the pattern of the believer because the stranglehold of sin has been broken, but no, believers are not sinless. That's the point of 1 John uh, 1, 8 through 10 that makes that very clear. But sin does not characterize the life of a believer. Sin characterizes the life of an unbeliever. And again, there is these litmus tests that are there. Romans 6, 17 through 18 states clearly, but God be thanked that ye were the servants that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And, and what he's saying here is believers no longer have the chains of sin upon their life. They are given the victory. They are enabled to overcome sin. And so examine your life. If you find that you defend your sin, that you call sin not sin, these are all indications of a heart problem. They're all indications of what you really believe in to where you belong. The believer is given victory over the empowerment that sin has. Beyond that, Jesus protects the believer. The he that is begotten of God is referring not to us, but to our Savior. Uh, we're not capable in our own power to overcome sin. That is actually not something to be depressing, but actually encouraging. I'm sure all of us, if we walk through our life, find certain things difficult to overcome. Some of those sins may be more public or more obvious. Some of those sins we've been so good at hiding, no one else knows but us. We recognize how powerful and suffocating sin is, but we're promised here in 1 John that God protects the believer. See, we are in him and he keepeth himself. That means this, we are his, our life is in Christ, and it says Christ keeps his own. He protects us. And he, Jesus, makes sure that the wicked one toucheth him not. Satan has no dominion over us. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness. Whenever I'm counseling someone, I'm, I'm trying to help somebody, the, the number one topic is, do they know Christ as their Savior? Because some people are, they got great bootstrap mentality. They got a great ability to pull themselves out. But I know that ultimate victory is not going to happen without them knowing Christ. He gives the victory and he will ultimately protect the believer Satan doesn't have to have the control. And so when someone's wrestling with something, and, and look, I, I, I say this because we do wrestle with sin. I wrestle with sin. But we can know with confidence that Christ breaks those chains, that we can be free because he has taken that dominion from Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says this, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of of the devil. We have victory. We've been given that victory because he enables 
us to that. That is why Paul can write confidently in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. We have the victory over sin as believers. But the question is this, are we living victoriously? If you find your life struggling with a dominating sin, well, one, you go back to where you belong, to whom you belong, and then you seek His help in overcoming what is a dominating burden, sin, problem. We know His promise of eternal life. We know He hears us. We know that we have victory over sin because verse 19 tells us we are His. And that's why I drive all the way back to to whom we belong. Look at verse 19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. I wrote this as a background. There are no spiritual orphans. Spiritually, you're not wandering without a family. You either belong in God's family or you belong in Satan's family. By the way, there are no other options. One writer notes this, there is no middle ground, no third option. You are not neutral to the family of God. You are not neutral to the family of Satan. You either belong in his family or you belong in God's family. But we know with certainty that as believers, we belong to him. And here's the interesting thing. He claims us. What is John writing here? He says, we are of God. We are claimed by God. I don't know if you've ever had an experience when one of your friends does something so ridiculous um, and embarrassing that someone comes to you and say, that's one of your friends? And what do you usually say, even if it's your best friend? You're like, we're not that close. <laughs> I have six brothers and one sister. My family has done things, and so have I, that are so ridiculous that people will say, we're not sure he's really our brother. That's not our sister. We didn't have a sister. You know, it's not possible. Right? We, we, we can be quite selective in who we claim as our own. And regardless of the connection, we quickly abandon someone if it serves our best interest. <laughs> he's my friend as long as being his friend is not socially bad for me. The second it's socially bad for me to be his friend, I will distance myself from him because he hurts my social status. It's only gotten worse in our day and age with social media, right? We find a way to get close and move away, and we do that whether it's a friend or whether it's family. That's not that way with our Savior. As believers, we do a lot of ridiculous things. We do a lot of embarrassing things, worthy of being disowned, but our God never abandons us. Instead, He claims us. And there's a beauty there. We are his. We forever belong to him, and then he actively claims us forever. Where we'll bail on someone in a minute, we'll distance ourselves from some connection, but John is saying, you're his. He claims you. We forever belong to him, and he claims us forever. But that same belonging with a different owner is true of those of the world. Because John wants to make both truths clear. The true church belongs to Christ. He claims them and he keeps them. He doesn't abandon them, even though we do things that are worthy to be abandoned for. 
But the world belongs to Satan, lieth in wickedness. They are not a neutral entity because not belonging to God means they are claimed by Satan. They belong to the world. See, John is writing to the church and he's there to reassure the church and, and in God's infinite wisdom, he's writing a certainty for the world that if there's an unbeliever sitting in the church that maybe is there because his family is there or traditionally he's been there, because remember, this is, this is further down the line. This is not the 30s and the 40 ADs. We're, we're, we're at 90 John is an old man. He's writing back to a church that has generational faith now. There's children and grandchildren and possibly even more that would be at the church. And he's letting someone know that if you don't belong to God, you do belong to the world. You belong to Satan. As James 4, 4 states, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There's no neutral ground. There is no third option. You belong. I put here, the question is this, who claims you? Who claims you? Because when you belong to God, he claims you forever and you belong to him forever. But when you don't belong to God, somebody else is claiming you and that somebody else is Satan. One certainty we all have is that we do belong to one of two kingdoms. You're either part of God's kingdom or you belong to Satan's. What is a beautiful reassurance and guarantee of belonging to the believer is the mark of condemnation and punishment for those who do not believe. You belong to someone. There are no spiritual orphans. Here's the question, to whom do you belong? Because you do belong. Now, John closes his letter with his final certainty, letting us know that we have truth. Verses 20 through 21, <laughs> whatever scripture repeats itself, uh, it's all, I was, I was teaching a class on biblical interpretation in Spanish, so I don't know what I'm saying, but either way, I'm, I'm trying. Um, and the reality is this, when anything is, any word in scripture is important, but whenever it's repeated, it's emphasizing it. And so as you look at 20, notice how many times true and truth come out. And we knew that the son of God has come and have given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Which may appear like a totally new topic, but it all ties together and, and we'll understand that. But notice something. He keeps emphasizing something. True, true, true. And he does that for a reason. We have truth. We realize that he grounds us. John began the letter talking about the word of life, and he closes stating that the Son of God has come and is still present. And, and here's what I think is great. We don't serve some abstract idea or concept. Our faith is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. You know the Son of God. This is the true God. This is his Son, Jesus Christ. He keeps emphasizing something to us. Now, remember what's plaguing the church is this higher knowledge elitism. I have some knowledge that you don't have. I've received some special enlightenment. I was talking to my Sunday school class, and whenever you see elitism, you can see a problem because Christianity doesn't have this elitism. It doesn't have these tears that you can dive into. 
Oh, I am a special Christian. I have special powers. I have special knowledge. You don't have the knowledge I have of God, and you can't have it because you're just a, a, a dumb person, and you don't have the same thing I do. There's no room for that in Christianity. And so remember, he's battling this, and he's battling these people who develop these ideas that they then have special status because they understand those ideas or can articulate those ideas. And and John is just wiping that off the map and saying, keep your arrogance at home. Our faith is rooted in the Son of God that you can know. It's relationship. And he's the true God. We don't serve an abstract idea. We serve Jesus Christ. He is divine, the Son of God forever, and He's been so on earth from His incarnation to His ascension. There's no dividing line. There's no changing it. This is the Son of God. We know the truth. We are kept in that truth, and nothing else is true. And that's the point of 21. (coughs) This is the true God and eternal life. And then He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. No other belief has truth in its foundation. One charge the world throws against Christianity, it's true. We're very exclusive. That's right, because there is no other truth. For us to say that another faith or another belief or another system has truth in it is to make us a liar, because God has been really clear. This is the true God and eternal life. That means there are no other gods. And that's why John gives a final warning to the church about idols. (coughs) Excuse me. He's writing to churches in Ephesus now who have the worship of the goddess Artemis, which is Diana, easier word to say, woven into the fabric of their culture. It was a part of daily life in that area. It was, if you want to um, use the term that people do in e- economy, it is the economy of that city. People came to Ephesus because of Diana. And so as part of who you are, of making money, of surviving as a city, the reason you exist as a wonder of the world is the worship of an idol. John wants them to be distinct and separate from that. He's trying to tell them that getting involved in that can quickly be given precedent over God and his worship. It can take precedent over the truth. (laughs) That engaging in that portion of culture, capitulating to the demands of that society, hey, this is who we are. You be a Christian, but man, you got you to do some of this stuff here. This is how we make our money. This is how we live. This is how we eat. This is why we b- b- build big houses, whatever it may be. And John's saying, don't get involved in that. Don't be pulled into that culture. And I know right away we're all saying, well, I'm not going to worship an idol, Kenny. Come on, give us some credit. Right? But let's apply it to today. We don't have physical idols to which we pay homage, but we have idols. Anything that is elevated above God is an idol. He is the true God. Anything else you put above God is an idol. It is as blatant as putting a statue in your house and bowing down to it. And by the way, worship of Diana included a whole heap more than bowing down to a statue. It was a complete cultural involvement from immorality to partying to everything you did was woven into it. So before we start thinking of them as simpletons or pagans, trust me, at least they just put an idol up to point to that fact that it was an idol. Because all the other components of idolatry, we would see and it would appear very sophisticated. 
But anything we take and elevate above God is an idol. And that's why John says, keep yourself from idols. It's actually a very practical admonition at the end of a letter. Watch for things that get a put above God, get a put above his worship. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're to be casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Anything that rises above worship of your Savior that puts or takes precedent above him needs to, as Paul said, be cast down. It's a very active thing. It's not whispering to it, hey, stop being there, get down. Well, I tried, but that just is sticking with me. It's casting it down. It's grabbing hold of it and throwing it to the ground. I don't know if you played King of the Mountain when you were a kid. Uh, I, I call that socialism, right? That's what Nicaragua is, King of the Mountain. Can I throw someone down? I get to the top, now I rule. That's the way that system works. But if you played that, you weren't just timidly asking the person at the top of the hill, hey, do you mind getting down? They're not getting down. You have to shove them down. That's the idea of casting every imagination down. You are getting physical with it. We should have no doubts that what we know is the only truth. And we need not be swayed or tossed about by the philosophy and reasoning of this world. We have truth. But here's the question. Do we act upon that truth? We have the answer that this condemned world cannot live without whether they admit it or not. You have the answer that everyone in the world needs. They may not admit the need. They may even be hearing this and say, he's crazy. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't have this need. You have that need, whether you admit it or not. We have the answer for this condemned world, but have you made that truth clear in your life? Or is that truth invisible because it's covered with the idols you've placed in front of it? See, because you can say you believe that he's the only true God and worship to him is all that matters, that it is the peak of life, that it is the focus of life. But if you have idols all in front of it, what you say means nothing because your life doesn't point to the fact that you believe it's the only true God. Because when you put all the idols in front of it, what you say doesn't line with what you do. It's going back to that idea, if God's word is the authority, then you will study it. If you don't study it, it's not the authority in your life, plain and simple. If God is the true God, and he is, and you're saying my life is a worship of the true God, then you'll make sure that no idol gets in the way of people seeing that he is the true God of your life. See, John closes this letter with certainties, things that believers can know without a shadow of a doubt. We have eternal life. That knowledge is not a permission slip to go sin because we can't lose eternal life. Instead, it's supposed to ground us so that our purpose is Christ, that we're not swayed by what the world does. We are heard. We know that we walk confidently before him, openly, with boldness into his presence because he hears us and responds to us. We have victory over sin. We know we are his and we have the truth. As we reflect on these certainties, let's be sure that we live accordingly. We are his ambassadors, and our lives should point directly to the truth of the gospel and its transforming power. We should live out the certainties that we have been given. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together, and we're so grateful for your word. 
and what it teaches us and, and where it compels our lives to be. <laughs> Help us as we walk through life that we live out the certainties that you've given us, that those certainties aren't just insurance policies that we have giving us permission to do whatever we want because we know we have something, but instead these certainties are foundational principles and that we build our life accordingly, that it's built in response to these certainties. As John is trying to help the church, churches in Ephesus understand what's going on uh, to grapple with the shaky ground that they feel. He's showing them that they stand on a firm foundation, that their life should be lived for you. Help us to be convicted, to be changed. As you say, get rid of all idols. Keep ourselves from idols. Help us to be worshipers of the true God, making sure that those around us see that we know you're the true God and that you carry the preeminent spot in our lives. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.